Troops at the border, a test of metal for the military. The defense chief in South Texas defends the use of soldiers at the U.S.-Mexico line. The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Border security is part of national security, says James Mattis at a forward operating base in South Texas. But what's the long-term goal for those 2,300 troops at the Texas border with Mexico? The state of kids in Texas. Today, we get new data. Also, the president set to sign a bill with bipartisan congressional support. Come again? We'll hear about the issue that's brought Congress, the White House, Democrats, and Republicans together today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, the weekend's almost here. From coast to coast and line to line, it's Texas Standard Time on this November 15th. We're awfully grateful you're spending a bit of your Thursday with us. I'm David Brown. Let's take a quick look at the Texas ticker. The folks at the Texas Tribune reporting that Texas state students were a likely factor in turning Hayes County from red to blue. The New York Times takes the transition a step further. The headline, as long as Trump is president, blue Texas could actually happen. That's the New York Times talk in there. A little later in the broadcast, a closer look at the Latino factor and why it may be time to retire that old line about the sleeping giant of the Lone Star State. Brick and mortar retailers doing surprisingly well and expecting lots of greenery under the tree this holiday season, but not so much Plano-based J.C. Penney. Even with consumer confidence and spending at their peak, JCP just lowered sales expectations and withdrew profit guidance. As you might expect, their stock's not doing so well as we speak. Companies long been on the ropes but had staged something of a comeback in recent years. Watch this space. First, it's down to the border. We're at a military base near McAllen. The Defense Secretary James Mattis visited active duty troops yesterday. Even as thousands of miles to the west, hundreds of people who had broken away from the so-called migrant caravan, those troops had been sent to counter, arrived at the Tijuana border. Mattis says border security is national security, though he conceded there's no clear long-term strategy. You know, his visit coincided with U.S. Customs awarding a new contract to build sections of a border wall on the Texas-Mexico border. Construction begins in February for $167 million contract that will put up eight miles of a border barrier in the RGV, Rio Grande Valley. Many who own land there are on edge about the wall. They say they're in the dark about what's going to happen to their land, and Border Patrol isn't communicating. There are even accusations that the Border Patrol is using bully tactics against anyone who asks questions. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies has more. It's a brisk, windy morning on the Texas-Mexico border, and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is being briefed on the deployment of about 7,000 active-duty troops. They are on a mission to stop a caravan of Central American immigrants from seeking asylum in the United States. And again, the purpose here is, uh, is not really focused on us. It's to give CBP personnel tactical-level mobility. Mattis, alongside Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, offered the soldiers words of support. Now, there's all sorts of stuff in the news and that sort of thing. You just concentrate on what your company commander, your battalion commander tells you. Because if you read all that stuff, you know, you'll go nuts, you know what I mean? As Mattis spoke, another meeting concerning the future of border security took place not far from the Army camp. 
It was about the proposed border wall, which was a key part of President Trump's election campaign, where he promised Mexico would pay for it. But at that meeting, things did not go smoothly. It's a farce. Mariana Trevino-Wright is the executive director of the National Butterfly Center, a wildlife sanctuary on the Rio Grande. She has been a vocal opponent of the border wall. Everything the government is doing, they're doing in secret, in an underhanded manner. Trevino-Wright said she was emailed by the Border Patrol an invitation to the meeting for landowners and stakeholders. However, she says when she showed up, the McAllen police were called and she was ordered to leave or face arrest. I know that they are small, stupid, vicious people, but I didn't know that they would take the opportunity at the landowner and stakeholder meeting to act on that. Trevino Wright said Border Patrol officials told her she was being ejected from the meeting because she shared the meeting's evite on her Facebook page. Carla Vargas is a staff attorney for the Texas Civil Rights Project. She represents the Butterfly Center. So there is nothing in the email itself that says you cannot disseminate this, this meeting is closed. There's nothing in the email that says anything to the extent of what happened. Vargas also tried to attend the meeting, but she says she never made it past the parking lot. As soon as my colleagues and I tried to go in, Border Patrol immediately um, denied us entry, saying that the meeting was only for a limited number of individuals, that they had a list, and only the people that were on the list were going to be allowed um, in. Vargas said when she tried to speak to someone at the Border Patrol about the meeting, they were given no information and were ordered to leave. They then um, contacted the McAllen Police Department and tried to have us escorted. When we asked what was going on, they essentially said that Border Patrol wanted to charge us with criminal trespass if we did not vacate the premises. Vargas said the Texas Civil Rights Project has attended previous border wall meetings for landowners and stakeholders, and there were no issues then. She said it's important that lawyers for landowners are allowed to attend. We're just trying to ensure that individuals um, have access to correct information and what their rights are so they can exercise those rights. Trevino Wright said she's heard from other landowners who were allowed to attend the meeting, and they tell her little information was provided about the pending construction of the border wall. Well, they don't intend to tell anyone what's going to happen to the land they're a steward of. They have not been transparent or forthright up to this point. Why would anyone think that's going to change going forward? Customs and Border Protection officials were not available for comment. David Martin Davies reporting for the Texas Standard. And now something you don't hear often on the news. President Trump is endorsing a measure that has the support of Democrats and Republicans in Congress. <laughs> Got your attention? Well, as it happens, this rare occasion for bipartisanship amounts to what some consider to be the biggest overhaul to the nation's criminal justice system in recent memory. Joining us now, Shyla Duwan. She is National Criminal Justice Editor with The New York Times. Uh, Shyla, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on The Texas Standard. Thank you. What exactly, first, before we get to the why, what exactly does this bill purport to do? Well, a couple of things. It um, does some things for to help people who are coming out of prison with reentry 
And some of those things are um, providing more education and treatment money in prison. Another major thing it does is it will soften some sentences, some mandatory minimums. There were some kind of three strikes provisions that it will lower the punishment for. And it will also make the um, cocaine crack disparity, which if you may remember, there were much higher punishments for crack than cocaine. Mm-hmm. Some saw and that as, as, as racially uh, uh, motivated in a sense. Correct. And so it will, it will fix that. And I, I mean, it, that has been corrected to some degree, but it will make some of those corrections retroactive, which has not been done before. I I, want to be clear about this because I said uh, some consider this to be the biggest overhaul to the nation's criminal justice system in recent memory. What is it that makes this such a big deal? Well, these are some issues that um, advocates have been working on for years and years to get done. And um, it's actually pretty modest. Um, I'd say modest, but significant. But you mentioned that this has been a conversation that's been going on for quite some time. Why now in 2018 after the midterm elections? Why is this? Is there something to the timing here? Yes. I mean, you've seen that crime has just been going down. It's been going down for more than 20 years. And it's it's now at near historic lows. And you, you just see the public opinion changing on these issues. The opioid crisis has mm-hmm. made people a lot more familiar with how drug addiction is criminalized. And, the, and a lot of people who didn't think about this before are saying, no, we shouldn't be putting people in prison for this. We should be giving them treatment. So there's been a sea change yeah. And uh, odd, odd alliances here as well. I mean, you have Kim Kardashian going to the White House. You have the Koch brothers uh, and, and you, they have the Center for American Progress all coming together. That's right. I mean, it, it, it really became a sort of thing where you thought this was the conventional wisdom. There were law enforcement leaders, police chiefs on board with this, sheriffs. Um, you had the left. They had libertarians wanting this. And in fact, yesterday, Variety magazine in Hollywood was having um, a criminal justice summit with Kim Kardashian there. Is, is this the end of the era of tough on crime? Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've seen the limits of that strategy and people realize that the pendulum swung too far. And you've seen that, that phrase be replaced with phrases like right on crime, phrases like smart on crime. Those are all meant to supplant this idea that, you know, a legislature can just say, oh, let's just increase the penalty to 25 years. 25 years is a really long time. And it's not proportionate. Our sentences became disproportionate. So I think people are waking up to that fact. It does appear to be a swing in the pendulum, and the folks at the New York Times are covering it. We'll have a link to this story at TexasStandard.org. Shyla Dewan is National Criminal Justice Editor with the New York Times. Shyla, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us on The Standard. Thanks for having me. Well, well, well's Dunbar. Nah. He's back in the saddle. Guilty as charged. Good to see you again, sir. <laughs> Good so, to be uh, back. You're monitoring the talk of Texas. Once yes, again. sir. Watching the conversation across Texas about topics from today's show in Houston. Angela Blanchard has this to say about that bipartisan legislation pushing for changes to sentencing laws and giving judges greater leeway in sentencing. Angela tweets, so glad about the push for criminal justice reform. Can we include innocent children locked up in cages in this redemption effort? Referring there to that uh, earlier 
Trump administration policy of family mm-hmm. separation. In Dallas, Reagan Republican has thoughts on another story, the troops stationed at the border, and those remarks from Secretary of Defense James Mattis calling the operation a great training event. Reagan Republican tweets, I appreciate that Mattis is trying to make our soldiers feel like there's a purpose for them to be away from their families, especially here as the holidays approach. Meanwhile, on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard Will calls the exercise at the border a misuse of the military and a waste of tax dollars. Those are just a couple of the items up for discussion on Facebook and on our Twitter account. Another story that people are sharing, and this is an interesting one, how one government college student got the bipartisan selfie of her dreams after spotting both Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz Mm. on the same flight. It is (laughs) a rather interesting interesting picture, actually. Definitely so, yeah. So back with reactions to that story and more later in the show. Hey, we would love to know what's making news in your part of Texas, you know what to do, right? You just reach out to us on Twitter at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook and Wells Dunbar is a looking for you. He'll be back in 35 as the Standard continues. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen including a healthy diet and exercise can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Got travel plans for Thanksgiving? Yeah, yeah, it's coming up fast. I mean, earlier than usual, it feels. Could be a record year for Thanksgiving travel in Texas, too. The TSA predicting 25 million flyers, a 5% increase from last year. AAA Texas estimating that over 4 million Texans will travel 50 miles or more for the holiday, up 4.7%. As you're pumping slightly cheaper gasoline, Texans may want to make sure their fluids, gauges, and tire pressure are up to snuff, too. Breaking down on the side of the road can be a terrifying experience. And on the freeway, well, what do you do when you're stranded next to a speeding lane of traffic? Houston Public Media's Gail DeLauder looks at a program in that part of the state trying to ease a certain degree of driver's anxiety. Now, if you find yourself in the scary situation on one of Harris County's toll roads, just take a deep breath and look in your rearview mirror. You just might see this guy. We patrol over 130 miles of the Hextra tollway system, which goes pretty much all the way around Houston. That's Jarrett Pasley. He's a supervisor with the Harris County Toll Road Authority's Incident Response Team. And his main job is to get breakdowns off the road. A few years ago, Hectra started a free service to help stranded drivers. Team members do things like change tires and jump dead batteries. And if they can't get your car started, they'll give you a tow to a safe spot off the toll road. To see the system in action, we met Pasley at the Central Toll Plaza on the Sam Houston Parkway. We climbed into a specially marked truck and hit the main lanes. Looks like we've already had an incident. We've been out here for just a couple of minutes, and here we go. Are they okay? Let's see here. Let's see. Usually when we come up on a stranded motor vehicle, we enter in our our computer here to see what's going on, but they may just be just stopped. With all this traffic around here, I can imagine what a terrifying experience it is if you've got just even a flat and you're out here with all this traffic rushing by and you've got to get to the shoulder. So I can imagine just, you know, how terrifying that can be. We've had several patrons that are really just horrific or scared. They're just like, you know, they feel like they were going to get hit. In this incident, the driver had just made a brief stop and she was quickly on her way. 
but Pasley has seen his share of roadside drama. He remembers when he was called to help a family of five who got a flat in the Katy Freeway managed lanes after a woman made a panicked and tearful call to 911. You know, once I pulled behind her and changed her flat, she was like, you know, very, very appreciative. She hugged me like 10 times because she was just so grateful that she was had a sense of safety behind her. Pasley knows firsthand just how dangerous it can be if you're standing unprotected beside the road. It happened while he was changing a flat for a driver a couple of years ago. And I was going to pick up my last piece of equipment to put back in my truck and drive off when a trailer tire came off a vehicle that was in the far left lane. That loose tire made it all the way across four lanes of traffic to the exact spot where Pasley was standing. Before he knew it, he was hit. I lost my radio. I had no forms of communication out there. I was up against the wall and the guy that I actually was helping was still there, but he actually drove off. So I was actually out there by myself for a while. Pousley says he was finally able to struggle back to his truck to call for help. I found out later that day that I had broken two bones in my back and fractured my pelvis. Pousley chalks it up to a freak accident. But he says it illustrates just how vigilant drivers need to be on any road in Houston. If you're just sitting here on the phone, you're not paying attention to anything around you. And just so having a patron, they're not paying attention and they just see you over there and they drift over there. I mean, anything bad can happen. So I always preach safety, safety, safety. Meanwhile, Pasley says he'll keep doing his part by helping stranded drivers get back on the road as quickly as possible. Hector says on average, it usually responds to over 200 calls a day on Houston's massive toll road system. In Houston, I'm Gail DeLauder. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. On Tuesday, Microsoft released an update to Windows 10. Okay, with software companies shipping feature fixes and security patches almost weekly, you may be asking yourself why this is news. Well, our tech expert, Omar Gayaga, says this week's update actually fixes a big problem for Microsoft more than a month after another update caused lots of trouble for users. Hey there, Omar. Hey, good to be here. Do you know a little deja vu here? It seems like some of these big computer companies have been having a little trouble with their updates. Yeah, and uh, Microsoft is, is kind of in the position of, of now having to explain how it does its testing for these software updates because this is the second or third time <clears throat> they've had these major issues with Windows 10. Uh, the October 2018 update that was supposed to roll out last month got pulled four days after it was going to be released because internally when they were testing it with beta testers, mm-hmm. uh, it was causing some uh, bricking, some major problems. Bricking. Wait, 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 wait. But wait, this seems to be a bigger issue than just Microsoft. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Right? I mean, we were talking just a few minutes ago I mean, before we, we got the mics lit up here. Uh Apple has been having some trouble of its own. Yeah, I think early adopters have sort of gotten in the habit of like waiting out any of the major releases for a few days to make sure the bugs get ironed out, to make sure that they're not going to release a big giant uh, OS update that's going to brick their phones. I don't know if you remember when uh, Apple released iOS 9. Uh I remember being at the Apple store and seeing people with their bricked phones going, all I did was update my phone. Uh, (laughs) But by bricking, we're talking about making it unusable. Yeah, where you actually have to take it to the store or reset the software or figure out a way to, to get it to not be dead. 
and they had <laughs> get this, it to not be dead. To not be I like dead. that. That's, that's the scientific to work. term. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but this just happened too with the Apple Watch. The the uh, 5.1 Apple software was breaking enough of the watches that people had to take them into the store oh, and get them repaired. So yeah, um, yeah, it's not. It's definitely not just Microsoft, but Microsoft is the latest to kind of get hit with this with this problem. Okay, so so how bad was it uh, for Microsoft? What was what was actually affected by uh, the bad update, and, and who got hit? Uh, it was mostly people who were. In, it never got released to the general public, uh-huh. which is good. But enough internal testers were were having this problem of their machines uh, kind of getting locked up. And I, I don't know if you remember. Uh, I think it was last year they released a big creators update, mm-hmm. and I actually was the victim of this. I was trying to help somebody with a computer that was sort of cycling through an update and just n- could never get out of it. Never get out of it. And we're not talking about people who are like employees necessarily of Microsoft. We're talking about people who are brought in from the outside to real world test some of these. Yeah, Microsoft has sort of a volunteer testing program. They uh-huh. also have an internal testing program where their own departments mm-hmm. kind of dog what's called dog fooding where you try your own software to make sure that it's not buggy so yeah they and they laid this out uh, in a post which is kind of unusual for them they don't usually reveal kind of how their testing goes but mm-hmm. I think enough people were complaining saying what's going on over there at Microsoft what is happening that they okay. had to kind of explain like no 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 we do test this stuff out before we release it well I mean maybe this is part of the testing process right I mean this was beta uh, as mm-hmm. I understand it. So, I mean, isn't Microsoft's best defense that this is our testing? Uh, you know, this is the way it works. It is, but I think where a lot of the complaints are arising from is that when, when Microsoft released Windows 10, a big part of its features were what's called automatic updates, where you wouldn't have to worry about it. It would just do these updates in the background. You uh, wouldn't have to tell it, yes, it. I want to update it. It would just it. do it. But then, you know, what if you get a bad update and you didn't sign Got off it. on it? So how do you find out if, in fact, you've gotten the fix or you still have something bad in your system? For this re- this new release, apparently, is, is you know, up to snuff. But, yeah, if you get locked in a, a situation where you just turn on your computer and it just starts cycling through an update, never mm-hmm. getting out of it. You got the bad one. You may not be alone. You, you know, I would Google and see, like, are other people having this problem and then call Microsoft's toll-free support number. Yeah, uh, you'll have to Google on another device, of <laughs> yeah. course. Uh, that's, that's tech guru Omar Gallaga, techminutetexas.com. Good to see you again, Omar. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me, we'll David. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Coming up on 29 Minutes, past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Texas Roundup's next. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design project management solutions to help cross-functional teams monitor projects in real time. More at softwareaspromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogle with a roundup of news from across the state. New data shows that Texas led the nation in economic growth earlier this year. Sangeeta Menon with KUT News in Austin has a look at the numbers from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Every state and the District of Columbia saw economic growth in the second quarter of this year. That varied widely across the country, with Delaware having the smallest uptick at 2.5% and Texas leading the country with 6%. The largest contributors to the Texas economy came from mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction. Sangeeta Menon, KUT News. School finance is expected to be a top priority for the Texas legislature when its 86th session gets underway in 2019. State Representative Dennis Bonin, an Angleton Republican, said as much when he announced earlier this week he has enough support to be the next Texas House Speaker. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider caught up with some other elected officials to get their take on the issue. Lawmakers tried and failed to overhaul school finance last year, following a decision by the state Supreme Court that found the system constitutional but effectively broken. 
Republican Senator Paul Betancourt says the odds of success are better with new leadership in the House. Comprehensive school finance reform can take a couple sessions, but I think there's going to be a lot of pieces that will come out and be passed in this session. Representative Gene Wu, a Democrat, says support for the effort cuts across both party lines and the urban-rural divide. What I always tell people is poor is poor. Uh, when you have poor rural districts, it's not really any different than poor uh, inner city districts. The 86th Texas legislature opens January 8th. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider. Texas public school students would still need to question whether the separation of church and state is a key constitutional principle under a preliminary vote taken Wednesday by the State Board of Education. This week, the partisan 15-member elected board is reviewing and approving new social studies curriculum standards. San Antonio Republican Ken Mercer argued the phrase separation of church and state does not appear in the Constitution. We want kids to read the Constitution. They're not doing that. We've heard it over and over through the years, people telling us, that is a constitutional phrase in there, separating church and state. I did not say that this was a constitutional phrase. I mentioned that it was a constitutional principle that Thomas Jefferson proposed, and that was used to express the intent of the Establishment Clause and free exercise. That second voice was Marisa Perez-Diaz, Democrat from Converse. The board voted along party lines to keep the requirement in the social studies standards. They also voted to retain language that describes Moses as a person whose principles of law influenced America's founding documents, despite no scholarly evidence to back that claim. A final vote is scheduled for Friday. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. You're tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The era of big data has brought enormous conveniences and some really frightening nightmares, too. But if you're worried about how much data is being gathered on you, well, you may want to consider what the people of Venezuela may be facing soon. Reuters reports that Venezuela is rolling out a new smart card ID, which may sound innocent enough until you hear how this smart card came about and what it will actually be able to do. Joining us now is Angus Barrick. He is Reuters correspondent based in Caracas. Angus, welcome. Hi, great to be here. Tell us a little bit about what this smart card ID is supposed to do and why Venezuela is uh, uh, distributing this to its citizens. Right. So um, in Venezuela, I mean, the idea of a, of a smart card has been a, a kind of long time kind of dream for the, the ruling socialists. Um, but um, it was only in December of 2016 when these plans first were were realized and Maduro um, introduced a card which is in, in Spanish called the the Carne de la Patria or the the Fatherland card. This card, which is it's a kind of it's a small plastic card with a with a scannable QR code. This card kind of effectively gives its holders access to a kind of a growing range of basic services, so things like subsidized you know food, which is distributed by the government, state medicine, pensions, subsidized gasoline. Yeah, and the government is linking these services, you know, ever more to the card. So if you don't have the card, you don't get the services. So we're talking about the Fatherland card. Now, how do the Chinese play a role here? I understand that the company ZTE has gotten involved. Exactly. So Maduro's government brought in ZTE in mid-2017 after an earlier version of the the database that um, collects all the, the kind of the personal data from these cards after that database was um, was hacked by an anti-government group of, of activists here in Venezuela. And um, ZTE was brought in to kind of to revamp the system, to strengthen it against any um, any future attacks. 
And um, given that ZTE in other parts of the world has raised you know, a lot of worries about the sort of technology that it exports to authoritarian governments like Iran and, and North Korea, there are kind of significant worries here about the motive of their involvement. I, I want to make sure that I'm clear about the, the nature of this card, because on the one hand, this fatherland card, as you're describing, it sounds like a more efficient way of distributing uh, social welfare uh, services. On the other hand, uh, you've got a company involved, ZTE. There have been questions raised, certainly in Washington, about the connections between the Chinese Red Army and ZTE. And uh, one wonders, what about the Maduro government? I mean, is this as innocuous as distribution of food and gasoline and that sort of thing? Or uh, might there be something else going on when it comes to the collection of data? Right. So um, the key aspect of these cards is that they they vacuum up a kind of huge kind of quantity of, of data. Every time a person you know, scans these cards, the system will log, you know, for instance, what that person's income is, what their job is, their address, um, what benefits they receive from the government, you know, whether they've been participating in, in events by the ruling Socialist Party, and even um, whether, whether a person kind of voted in um, the May election, which um, Maduro kind of controversially won. I mean, I found I found evidence that the government is is using this database to assess kind of particularly whether state employees, of which there are you know, millions and millions in Venezuela, whether they voted in May, basically as a as a way of assessing their their loyalty to to Maduro. Has anyone been specifically targeted, to your knowledge? There's evidence across the country that that, for instance, you know, people's you know food handouts were withdrawn. Because they didn't, they didn't participate in the votes. I spoke to, to one kind of 76-year-old man who'd been denied uh, a prescription for insulin because I think a state doctor said that because he didn't have the fatherland cards, he he wasn't um, kind of uh, eligible. And that's kind of part of the strategy here. I mean, you know, the government wants people to have the cards. They want to be able to, to kind of take in all this data. If you're not willing to surrender that data, then you don't get the services. Well, what about how Venezuelans themselves are reacting to this? I mean, do they realize the sort of information that's being collected on them and how it may or may not be used against them? What are you hearing? Many Venezuelans perhaps don't realize the kind of the full extent of the of the data which which they are surrendering. But I think at the same time, there are a lot of Venezuelans who who are kind of irrespective of their political beliefs, what's more important to them is being able to still get you know subsidized food or or their pensions or subsidized fuel. And um, I think, I mean, especially in September when the government kind of first announced that it was going to start linking the card to pensions and fuel, there were queues forming in the in the streets here in, in Caracas you know, going around the whole, you know, whole blocks. There are people waiting to get these cards. And a lot of them were saying, you know, I don't agree with the government. I don't support Maduro, but I can't take a risk on, on losing access to these services by not getting the fatherland card. Angus Barrick is Reuters correspondent based in Caracas, Venezuela. We'll link to his article on this at texasstandard.org. Angus, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Dick. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. 
The National Rifle Association has no problem picking fights with perceived rivals and, to be fair, vice versa. And in an era in which tweets can trigger weeks or more of news coverage, a tweet by the NRA on November 7th became a stop the presses moment in the gun control debate. The NRA tweeted, quote, someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane, close, close quote. As Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie reports, a San Antonio surgeon is among some gun-owning doctors not following the NRA's traffic guidance. UT Health San Antonio surgeon Donald Jenkins supports gun rights. I am a life member of the NRA. I'm a firearm owner. I've spent 24 years in the military. But he's also a doctor, and he thinks something needs to be done about gun violence in the United States. So Jenkins and 21 other members of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, 18 of whom are gun owners, have issued recommendations they hope might curb gun violence. Among their recommendations is that the federal government classify mass shootings as a federal crime. This is terrorism because it exists to terrorize people when these mass shootings occur. Period. The end. If potential mass shooters are thought of as potential terrorists... You could bring the resources of the federal government to bear to perform the proper surveillance to prevent these things from happening. Because in almost every one of these instances, after the fact, people come forward and say, oh, we knew it was only a matter of time. He's been posting things on these uh, social media platforms that caused us to believe that he was going to harm someone. Jenkins says gun violence should be considered a public health issue, like motor vehicle safety, and doctors should be at the table when crafting solutions. But he doesn't think doctors should be alone at that table. They should be joined by mental health professionals, the NRA, and even gun manufacturers. If you're going to work on preventing firearm injury, violence, and death, you're going to work with the people who are the experts in that industry, and we have to bring them together if we're going to make any inroads in this whatsoever. Jenkins says it's important to him that gun rights are preserved, but the cost American families are paying under the status quo is too high. The right to life is just as important as the right to own a firearm, and we have to treat it as such. The NRA has long argued against funding for research into gun violence as a public health issue. Reporting for the Texas Standard, I'm Bonnie Petrie. Forbes is naming names again with a list of the wealthiest Texans. The usual names are there. Dell, Perot, Cuban, notably two new ones. Bill Austin, whose net worth is estimated at $2.5 billion. He founded a hearing aid business nearly 50 years ago, which has become the nation's largest manufacturer of hearing aids. There's also Ty Lee, the Bangkok-born $2.3 billionaire, who built a software reseller into a juggernaut called SHI International. At the top of the list, Alice Walton of Fort Worth. You've heard of Walmart, perhaps. Estimated net worth about $45 billion, give or take. In a state that's awash in wealth, it's more than fair to consider the flip side. A grim statistic indeed, the one in five Texas kids who bear the burdens of living in poverty. Texas often touts its record of economic growth, low unemployment rates, and its success as a magnet for workers. But who's thinking about the kids in tow or how well-fed or educated they are? Today, a group that advocates for low- to mid-income families and children, the Center for Public Policy Priorities, C-Triple-P as they call it, releases its 2018 State of Texas Children Report. And it sheds quite a bit of light on why, as one recent survey discovered, Texas ranks in the bottom 10 states for child well-being. 
So where's the data and how can Texas improve? Christy Tingle is research analyst for the CCPP. Christy, welcome to Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. Top line here on this study, one in five kids in Texas lives in poverty. Uh, Who and where in the state are these kids? They are all over. Um, So right now I'm actually in Bayer County uh, about to give a presentation on this data, and it's about one in five kids here as well. Um, We see that number be pretty consistent across the state, ranging from about 18% to 25% of kids in each county living in poverty. Um, And the fact is that's just way too many kids. Okay, so what is perpetuating these rates? Uh, Well, a lot of it is family economic security. Um, You know, kids aren't out there earning their own wages. They can't get themselves out of poverty. And so if their parents aren't able to to make a living wage at their jobs, if they're not able to access the supports they need, um, then that's why these kids are living in poverty. Well, this at a time when we're hearing that unemployment uh, has never been uh, lower in, I mean, historic levels of unemployment in the uh, low levels of unemployment in the United States. So what's going on? Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons this is so shocking. But um, what the data show is that any parent who has a child, if that parent is working full time at minimum wage, they're not making enough to keep them and their child out of poverty. Um, And that just shows that even for a parent who is working that year round full time, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just too hard to make ends meet. So even though unemployment is low, if the jobs aren't aren't good enough, if they're not paying enough, uh, then families are still going to be struggling to get by. What the CCPP is doing, in a sense, is is, it strikes me, is that they're turning the spotlight away from the economics of the working person and talking about the people who are affected uh, uh, in that family here. This is part of a larger effort called Kids Count, which is what kind of initiative? How would you describe it? Sure. So Kids Count is a project of the Annie Casey Foundation. Uh, We as the Texas grantee uh, gather data on how kids are doing in Texas on all kinds of metrics, poverty, but many other things like health insurance, uh, economic security, um, all sorts of uh, topics. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we track county by county how kids in Texas are doing. And then nationally, you can go on the Kids Count Data Center and look at how kids across every state are doing. You can drill down into every county and every state. And it just provides a wealth of information that folks can use. Uh, and we encourage people to use this data in policymaking because we believe that policymaking should be grounded in data and facts. Let's let's touch on this issue of data. Uh, one point that's brought up in this report is uh, what, what happens in the upcoming census and how difficult it is to account for children accurately in this in this census. Say more about that. Sure. So Texas has a lot of reasons to be concerned about an undercount. Um, with the addition of the citizenship question, we're definitely worried about people potentially being fearful of filling out the census and having a much worse undercount than Texas has had in the past. But specifically looking at children, um, we know that a uh, 30% of all children under the age of five in Texas are at really high risk of being undercounted. And that's because they both as a group, young children are hard to count. Um, but then these 30% of young children are living in census tracts that are also hard to count. Um, so we're seeing a really high risk for an undercount of children. And what that means is that Texas might have less representation than we deserve in Congress if there's an undercount. But it could also affect our funding for these programs that improve outcomes for kids. And I'm talking about programs like education, school lunches, Head Start, mm-hmm. Medicaid, CHIP, Um, All that funding, uh, a lot of it comes from the federal government, and it's based on these census data. So if we don't count every kid, we're not going to get the money we need to support every kid. Okay, so you can anticipate, you can see where there are gaps. Now, obviously, Texas lawmakers are getting ready to return to uh, the Capitol. The legislative session is just around the corner. 
Is there anything that you anticipate um, uh, you'll be making in terms of recommendations to policymakers, given what you know and what, of course, you don't know? Absolutely. Uh, on the census front, we are really encouraging uh, that the state create a complete count committee. Um, that committee can help make sure that Texas has a full count of its residents. We'll also be really focused on school finance this session. Um, Texas really needs a remodel to its school finance system to support every kid for success. So we'll be at the, at the Capitol promoting that um, pretty much every day, all session. Christy Tingle is a research analyst for the Center for Public Policy Priorities, CPPP as it's known among uh, uh, folks here in the capital city. Christy, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Children's Hospital, located in Houston. For more than 60 years, committed to putting care for the nation's tiniest cowboys and cowgirls first. More information is available at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The race for U.S. Senate in Texas was very, very close, closer than any statewide election in recent history. A big reason for that? Well, you could credit ubiquitous yard signs if you'd like, but something much more fundamental appears to be in play. If you're looking for clues, KUT Austin's Ashley Lopez might urge you to consider why many get-out-the-vote groups aren't sitting around till 2020 to start investing in the Latino vote. For Cristina Sinsun Ramirez, there was one big takeaway from last week's election. Latinos are becoming a political force to be reckoned with in this state. Sinsun is the executive director of a group called JOLT. Its mission is to get young Latinos in particular politically engaged. Our largest turnout came out from Latinos ages 18 to 25. Even though we door knocked on Latinos up to the age of 60, the largest turnout came from young Latino voters. And I think that that's a big lesson. Sinsun says it's a big lesson mostly for Democrats. For years, she says, Democrats have not done enough to reach out to Latino voters who have historically been less likely to vote. And compared to Latinos in other parts of the country, Texas Latinos are known to vote for Republicans in fairly large numbers. But that's been starting to change. For one, more Latinos have been voting in the past couple of years. And Sinsun says how they vote is changing, too. Exit polls show about 64 percent of Latinos voted for Democratic Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke over Republican incumbent Ted Cruz. So really, you're starting to see a huge shift in Latino voters consistently going for Democrats in the last two elections here in Texas. Even though O'Rourke lost, it's a sign that engaging Latino voters makes a huge difference in Texas, says Albert Morales with Latino Decisions. It's a polling firm in D.C. Morales says O'Rourke losing by a mere 2.6 percentage points in a state as historically conservative as Texas is a sign that there is a path forward for Democrats here. There is now merit in investing in Texas, and I would start with voter registration efforts. About four and a half million Latinos are eligible to vote in Texas. But Morales says he thinks only about two million are actually registered. Registering people to vote in Texas is an expensive and time consuming process. That's part of the reason groups don't typically spend money on registering voters who are not likely to vote. But Morales says now it might be easier to convince Democratic groups to do that. Now you have evidence. You have evidence that it's within reach. 
Morales says it's more than just one thing that's tipping the scales here. He says it also helped that O'Rourke was a strong candidate. And probably just as important, issues like immigration and the way Republicans have been talking about Latinos have changed things, too. Morales says Latino Decisions did a poll before the election that showed Latino voters were angry about immigration, angry about family separation at the border, the Trump administration ending DACA, among other things. And we also saw a lot of self-mobilization. So, for example... In our final tracking poll, I think the night before the election, 77% of Latinos had indicated that they were encouraging uh, family or friends to turn out and vote. This is a larger trend that has Republicans in Texas concerned. Artemio Muniz is the chair of the Texas Federation of Hispanic Republicans. He says the hard line that Republicans like Donald Trump and Ted Cruz have drawn on immigration is making Texas more of a swing state. I believe that If the Republican Party of Texas does not address immigration, then we we go blue. And remember, Muniz is a Republican. He says not only is immigration turning away Latinos, it doesn't help Republicans that Democrats are starting to seriously mobilize. And and that's what the Republican Party of Texas has also depended on in the last few years. They keep depending on the Democratic Party not doing their job. Muñiz says that's going to have to change if Republicans want to continue winning elections statewide. He says Republicans can't just talk about jobs and the economy anymore in the hopes that Latinos will vote for them. Muñiz says they have to change how they talk about immigration. The Democratic Party is having success not just because they're organizing and because they have money, but because we have antagonized and disrespected the Hispanic community. And Cristina Sinsun Ramirez with Jolt says outside Democratic groups are going to seize that opportunity. You're going to see uh, sizable investments come to Texas like you haven't seen before. She says most of that money should be spent on mobilizing young voters of color. Her group is part of a coalition that plans to register 300,000 voters in Texas under the age of 30 before the 2020 election. According to her group, 43 percent of those Texans are Latino. And Sinsun says it's not just Republicans who have lessons to learn here. While Latinos turned out in record numbers, they were still underinvested in by both major parties. Sinsun says political parties and philanthropic organizations all need to start thinking about Latino voters differently, and they need to start investing in them. In Austin, I'm Ashley Lopez. And you were listening to The Texas Standard. Did you hear what Eric Austin of KERA called you, Will? I heard it might have something to do with a certain uh, banking institution. Financial institution, yeah. Wells Wells Fargo is going to be back. He thought that was real funny. (laughs) Real funny. (laughs) Hadn't heard that one before. Were you in El Paso? I certainly was. I just got back from El Paso a few days ago. Home sweet home. A wonderful trip. A little bit of an early sort of Thanksgiving uh, trip down there. Cool. And uh, definitely didn't disappoint in the eating department. I think that my body (laughs) weight is like 50% gorditas right now. Well, will you? carry it well. Oh, well, thank you. So, and, and, uh, you know, our friends out there are so hospitable on Facebook. Jaime Solorza, he offered to take me out for some Mexican How food nice. next time I'm there. Very nice. And I have to give a huge shout out to KTEP, the wonderful uh, public radio yeah. NPR member great, station great there books. on the beautiful UTEP, University of Texas that at El Paso campus. campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bhutanese architecture. Dennis there giving me a great tour of the dig. So yeah, wonderful time. Wonderful awesome, time awesome. in El Paso. What Always are Texans is. talking about on this uh, Thursday? Well, speaking of El Paso, I mentioned this earlier, just day 
days after the rancorous Texas election for U.S. Senate. Did I get that right? Rancorous? Rancorous, yeah. A works. college student. Yes. A college student captured a picture with both El Paso's own Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. I saw Really that. interesting little thing here. Yeah. The student in question, Tiffany Easter, she's currently at Texas A&M's Bush School of Government and Public Service. So this was, you know, pretty, <laughs> like a major thing for her yeah, to sure, happen upon course. these two yeah. folks. And she sets the scene better than I can in this viral Facebook post sharing her picture with both politicians. So I will just leave it to her. She writes, we're in Houston about to fly out to Washington, D.C. for the weekend. Who is on our flight? Beto and Ted Cruz. What are the odds? Yeah, Beto noticed Ted sitting down and walked over to congratulate him on his re-election and campaign. It was the first time they had seen each other since the election, and the entire conversation with both of was both of them talking about how they could move forward together. The Texas mm. Senate race was one of the most contested and most watched in the nation. Today, we literally watched them come together. This is America. This is good. This is wholesome. This is why I love to do what I do. Very cool stuff. And our friends on Facebook are noticing as well. Christopher Bart says that her comments are spot on and that we're only divided when we choose to be. Meanwhile, Brad Emmons uh, has a very uh, uh, salient n note here. He says that the only... Notable takeaway he got from the Houston airport was the flu. Ooh, so definitely, ah. so definitely a notch or two above that. Yeah, uh, uh, it was uh, a it was a nice picture. Yeah, uh, both gentlemen uh, looking. Yeah, just uh, there you see the tarmac in the background. Yeah, yeah, smiling and uh, looking sincerely happy with <laughs> to be in each other's presence. Probably see happy, a whole lot of that. sincerely happy that that election is over. Yeah, that may be that you may have hit on it right there. I would there. think. Uh, last, uh, we are out of time for the big broadcast. If we haven't touched on something that's making news in your part of Texas, you know what to do, right? Just reach out to us and let us know because we'd love to follow up. The news continues online at texasstandard.org and we will continue on the air tomorrow. We certainly do hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, I'm David Brown wishing you a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.